Ricky and Calvert was my best friend growing up. It was a brotherly love. That was, I look today, it was rare. Um, I went on his vacations, he went on mine, uh, and we were blood brothers. Those of you who are the children of the 50s, 60s, and 70s remember this ceremony, right? You're a blood brother. If you wanted to have an agreement with one another, you took a knife, you slit your hand, and you shook hands on it, and you held it there. That we are blood brothers. And that's what we were. You, you wouldn't find one of us without the other our whole childhood. As a matter of fact, there was one vacation where I went with him down to his grandparents' house in the Chesapeake Bay in southern Maryland. It was a little bit of heaven on earth for little 8, 10, 12-year-old boys to go out with a 20-foot John boat with about a 15-horsepower Evinrue. Now, his, his grandmother, whom we called Nana, uh, had a beehive hair. I swear she had blue hair, you know, and she was 5'1", but you didn't mess with Nana. She would hit me if need be. And she was an amazing woman, and, and she, we, we listened to her and Mr. King, that was their name. Mr. Jack King was a jeweler, he was a Naval Academy graduate who had served our country and opened a jewelry shop in Falls Church, Virginia. And so I had the privilege of vacationing at their place with Ricky, and so we would go out, and, and Nana would shake her finger at us and say, boys, don't go out so far that I cannot see you. But Mr. King was smart. He said, guys, just let out the anchor, and if you don't feel that the anchor doesn't hit the bottom, you've gone out too far. One time we went out a little too far, as boys are wont to do, and a storm came up. And 15 horsepower, I got to tell you, isn't enough in a storm to get you back to the shore, which we learned the hard way. But we did get back. But the point is, as long as we got the anchor and we could feel it hit the base of the bay, we were safe. And we could go fishing, we could go crabbing, we could do anything we want. We could jump off the boat and go swimming. It was amazing and so much fun. But as long as we didn't venture too far out and we could anchor it down to the bottom, we were good. And we had lots of adventures as blood brothers. I swear we did that ceremony at least once a year growing up. Because there was something we were a little bit in disagreement. We had to come to an agreement. And we said, all right, let's shake on it. No, it's not good enough for you. You know, pull out your pen knife. Blood brothers. It was great. We have left off our Palm Sunday, since Palm Sunday and Easter. And we're returning to Genesis today. As we're going to look at God's agreement with Abraham Abram at this point. I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice the text is on the back. We last left off Abram where he had received that wonderful object lesson of the stars. Abram is concerned. He's getting up there in years and this promise has been going on for a while that he'll have offspring and his offspring will be God's people forever. And Abram has two problems. He says, Lord, I don't know if you're going to live up to your end of the bargain, but I don't know at this stage in my life that I can live up to my end of the bargain. So the Lord takes him out and shows him the stars. Remember that? And that famous text, he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
He hadn't done a thing in following the Lord right now other than just listen to him and be faithful up to this point. But now he's considered righteous. Specifically by placing his trust in what the Lord has promised him. And what we're going to see this morning is, although he has all that, there's still a problem. And so God makes a promise to him and fulfills that promise. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see the problem, the promise, and the promise fulfilled. Let's look at this. The problem that Abram has is, all right, Lord, you just gave me the object lesson of the stars. So what? You know, that's cool. He's been declared righteous. This is going to happen, Abram. But that wasn't enough at that time. So the Lord says to him in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So what does Abram do? Yes, Lord, I got it. No, he's just like us. When he says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, the Lord doesn't rebuke him with, how dare you speak to me like that? Or, I just declared you righteous and that's how you talk to me? No, God reveals to him and to us that despite multiple doubts, multiple stumbling in the faith, he listens and he reveals to us. And he does so today, my friend, predominantly through his word. But he doesn't leave us in those doubts. He doesn't leave us in those questions. He calls us further in and further up and to follow and respond to him. That is why we are a learning community. We're all at different places of our journey, right? You know? And we're a place where those questions are welcome. I encourage you, if this text or anything in the service you have a question about, come ask. I'm back here at the visitor table, the question and answer table. That's what we do because that's what we are. And even when we disagree with one another, we don't take our ball and go home. We keep coming back each and every week. Because that's what a learning community does. And even though Abram, he's been given the object lesson of the stars, he, he, he's not quite sure. He still doesn't get it. He still has the problem. Lord, I don't know how you're going to give me an heir in this land to possess. And I don't know if I can do it either. See, the problem still remains for him. And he keeps coming back with the questions. You've had people in your life like that, right? The person in my life like that was Janet Colgrove, my high school chemistry teacher. From late August through June, I was with her every Tuesday and Thursday right after school. Because it isn't my bag, all right? Chemistry and physics, it wasn't happening. And so I would go back and I'd ask her a question about something and she would say, you know we covered that in class. I go, yeah, we covered it in class, but I need to do it. Because I don't learn that way, Mrs. Colgrove. I don't. I got to do it. Help me. Help me apply it. Because I just, I didn't learn that way. Some of you didn't learn that way. But what I discovered in Mrs. Colgrove was a friend who was really on my side. And as I've said to you before, I was the king of 85%. That's a C in my school district. 
You know, how about an 86, Ms. Colgrove? Nope, you didn't earn it. If you worked harder and smarter, you'd get it. Like, gee, thanks for that encouragement. You know, it was, that was my relationship with this woman. She was great. But you know what? No question was so stupid. No doubt of my own ability was, was far. And, and I was close to that woman by the time it became May. You know, my, my coaches got a little upset. Haven't you learned that by now? Nope. So here I came running out to practice late because I, I had to get this stuff down. My friends, the Lord will take your doubts, but he doesn't leave you there. Just like Ms. Colgrove didn't leave me there, he's not going to leave you there. We keep growing, but we don't stop to the day we draw our last breath. Next we see the promise in a contract-style blood brother agreement, but even better, it's God's style. Verse 9, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You see, this isn't a contract. This isn't just a term of agreement. This isn't just a handshake. This is a covenant, because the Bible knows no such thing as a contract, because we break contracts all the time. This is something which has meaning. It's a, a binding agreement with blessings for walking in that covenant and consequences, which the Bible calls curses, for breaking this covenant. So what's happening here, and Abram knew exactly what he's doing. You know, bring these animals. Bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and cut them in half. And what would happen is the parties would walk through the parts of the animals together, one at a time, or maybe even one of them would walk through, thus saying to the other party, may I be like these animals if I break my agreement with you. It's very visual, very meaningful. I think if we did it that way, we'd have less uh, breaking of contracts, probably. I think you'd also have people for the ethical treatment of animals after you. But it's so much better than a contract. It's so much better than even being a blood brother. So what happens is God first states the terms of the agreement. So Abram's split the parts, laid them down, driving the birds away. And then in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that's a promise. Here's God foretelling of Israel going down to Egypt, being enslaved for 400 years. Abram knows nothing about this, but the Lord's telling him what's going to happen. And he's making a covenant with him that your offspring will come back to this land through a period of tribulation, yes, but they will come back. And you, Abraham, will live to be an old, old man. 
and be buried in a good old age. Now that's a promise. Abraham, you will receive all this. For this is a covenant. And you get the seriousness of this, right? We don't do in the church, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? We don't shake, you know, shake hands and cross your hands behind your back, you know, things like that we used to do when we were kids. No. Me and Ricky would do that and I'd say, let me see your hands. You can't cross them behind you. No, this is a covenant. Because that's what God's people do when we baptize our children, when we get married, when we are godparents, when we join. It's a covenant with blessings for walking in that covenant and consequences for not obeying it. The best godparent I've ever seen is my friend Reed being a godparent to my son DT. Reed and Deanie Henselink pray for him every day. Every time I talk to them, you know, we're praying for Daniel Thomas today. How's he doing? Always asks. And on the 14th of March, DT gets a phone call from his godparent every year with this laundry list of questions. DT loves it. Daniel Thomas, how's your walk with Jesus? And just keeps going and going. What are you studying? What are you reading? Where are you going to school? What are you going to study? Why? You know, that's living into the covenant. Because I asked Reed, Reed, you're a great godparent. I really want to appreciate that. He goes, I made a promise. And it's a covenant. And if more people in God's church would understand that, what a healthier place a church would be. I go, amen. Amen. And last, we have a surprising fulfillment. I don't know if you caught this, but it's important because what we see in this is the good news that each and every one of us seeks. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, beholding, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. The word smoking is that Hebrew word ashan. It's only used in times of God's presence. And it's a time to convey the awesome holy presence of God. That word smoking happens on Mount Sinai when God appears to Moses. And a flaming torch, it's like the flaming torch that leads the people of Israel by night. So what we have here is the awesome holy presence of God. Going through the pieces. And on verse 18 he says, And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Jerry was going to say the socialites just in case you were missing it. <laughs> and he... And he Tammy told me that last night. I go, don't, eat, don't you dare. <laughs> the termites, the socialites. The point is, this is going to be a large piece of land that Abram's offspring will possess. Huge. But here's the thing that Abram knew. And what you need to know. God walked through the pieces alone. He did not say to Abram, now you do it. It's mind-blowing. 
We know this from history and archaeology, dear friends, that whenever a king would enter into this type of agreement with a lesser state, a conquered state, a vassal state, either both the king and the servant would go through the pieces, or they'd go one at a time through the pieces, or maybe just the servant would go through the pieces. But never would the king go through the pieces, just by himself and not the servant. Because what we're saying here is if I don't do my part, may I be eaten by the birds of the field. Or just the servant would go through. But here with Abram, just God walks through. God is saying, Abram, I'm going through for both of us. My friends, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Salvation in the Christian faith is not a cooperative effort. It is not God helps those who help themselves. It is not a partnership. God comes through and says, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us, Abram. But Abram, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the bargain. And may I be cut off if you don't do your part of the bargain. Because Abram's been wondering, I don't know if I can do it. Exactly. Because I will do it. I will be cut off. Don't you realize centuries later, in the gospel reading today, darkness fell over the land at the sixth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out our psalm for the day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, 8 says something Abram didn't know. Abram had no idea what was going to cost God the promise that God had just made to him. Isaiah says about the Messiah, for he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. See, God's immortality became mortality in Jesus. His immutability suffered mutation. The impossible became possible. God died. God was cut off. God was trampled into the dust. Darkness came down on him just like it came down on Abram in this covenant. So first, in application, we got to look at all our problems that we bring to our lives this morning. And I, I mean all your problems. We have to see them really as we have them because we don't trust the promises of God. Our anchor is not all the way down. Do you know why you're worried? You don't trust his wisdom. Do you know why you're angry and maybe just a little bitter? You don't trust his justice. Do you know why some of you hate yourselves? Because you don't trust his love and his grace. In fact, do you know why you disobey anytime? Ever? Why you ever do the wrong thing? Because you don't trust God himself. God's presence is better than anything you could ever possibly get by disobeying him. In other words, what you really believe is, I better do what will make me happy because if I trust God all the way to the bottom, I'm going to miss out on life. 
In other words, what you really believe is, I'd rather do what I, will make me happy, ultimately. How about your lack of self-control, your lack of self-esteem, your anxiety, your bitterness? See, whatever it is that you anchor in is the water of your life. And you have to go all the way down in Jesus Christ. You need an anchor for your soul. So how do you get that? Number one, you got to be like Abram and honest with the Lord and say, Lord, how do I know? It's okay. He can take it. Abram came and said, Lord, I, don't, I need to trust you more. I don't see how I can. And God says, I'll show you. When the man came to Jesus and said, would you please heal my son? And Jesus said, well, of course I can if you believe. What did the man say? I think I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed him. Because here's the gospel. The people who think they see are blind. And the people who admit to being blind see. The people who think they have lots of faith haven't got any. And the person who says, I wish I could believe, help my unbelief. That's the beginning of belief. And God will be with him and come to him or her. Maybe I should put it this way. Great faith starts by saying, I don't have it. The minute you finally say that, God comes to you and he will do something in your life to reveal himself to you. But you have to go to him and say, I don't know. Help me. You have to go to him. And he doesn't rebuke you. He doesn't spiritually slap you. He welcomes those questions. So bring them. You remember John the Baptist came to him, he sent a messenger to Jesus and said, are you the one or shall we look for another? Jesus doesn't say, how dare you question me? He sends a message back and say, if you go to God, just like John the Baptist, tell him what happened. Tell John what happened. And John got great confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And if we, if we come to God and say, I know what my problem is. I don't trust you. I don't trust me like Abram. I, I don't have this life all figured out. Help me. God will. See, it's important to understand that faith cannot stand alone without repentance. They're inseparable like two sides of the same coin. Repentance is simply turning from your sin with a willingness to change. The key is willingness. This doesn't mean one has to immediately stop every sin that they have been committing before they become a Christian. But it does mean that they are willing with God's power by the Holy Spirit to change and to admit that is to say, Lord, I can't do it. Just like Abram. The second thing is how we anchor our souls in Christ is to major in the major, not in the minors. What are the issues of our day? I want you to forget about them. <laughs> forget about whether or not God invented the world in seven 24-hour days or whether he used evolution. Forget about all the LGBT sexual ethics. Don't worry about all that's on the front page of the Plain Dealer or Cleveland.com. Let's not talk about whether all the miracles in the Bible happened. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's the one whom darkness came down upon, 
If he was the one who was cut off from the land of the living, if Jesus is the one, everything else will fall into place. You're not going to get an anchor for your soul by studying archaeology. You're not going to get an anchor for your soul by studying all these Christian apologetic issues that are on those peripheral issues. All right? Go to the cross. Go to the resurrection. And you have to do exactly what God did for Abram. Let him show you the good news of the gospel. Go to Jesus. You have to see him doing what he did for you. Do you know what he did? He loves you so much. There's an anchor for your soul. Because it wasn't just water that wouldn't dislodge Jesus from us. Even hell couldn't dislodge Jesus from us. All hell came down upon him upon the cross. And he was ripped to pieces and he stayed the course. And in Easter season, we celebrate. He proved who he was in the resurrection. That's your anchor, ladies and gentlemen. So look at it. And if you do, you'll trust. And in some ways, it's intellectual. Because if you go to Jesus first, everything else in the Christian life falls into place. But it's also experiential. You have a peace that does indeed surpassing all understanding. But if it's not a thinking faith, it's not the Christian faith. So how do you know if there's a God? Look at the evidence for Jesus. How do you believe in miracles? If Jesus did what he said he'd do, miracles are no biggie. Why do you believe this or why do you believe that? I don't think Christians are right about this or that. Well, if Jesus is who he says he is, everything falls into place intellectually. But personally, experientially, we need to see him, catch sight of him, get a vision of him. Have you gotten this good news this morning? Have you been moved a little bit on the inside or even on the outside? That's the way the anchor goes down all the way. And it will move you. Lord God, you're my shield. Not my circumstances. For the Lord Jesus is my great reward. Dear friends, he doesn't say, I've come to bring you your great reward. He says, I am your reward. Because in the end, we get Jesus, friends. That's the abundant life we're talking about. Let's pray. Help us, Heavenly Father, to get our anchors all the way down this morning. And the only way for us to do this is to, like Abram, admit our problems, admit our difficulties, admit our doubts, and talk to you as if you're there. Secondly, Lord, I pray you'd help us to see the center of it all. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he God who became changeable, vulnerable, breakable, killable? Is he the one who was cut off? Is he the one who passed through the pieces and said, I will pay the penalty if I break my word and I will even pay the penalty if you break your word? Father, we thank you for the salvation that you've given us in Jesus. We pray that each and every one of us would recover it. And each and every one of us would understand it and get it. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.